Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm Tim Cronin. I'm John Simon. We're here today to talk about jury nullification. All of us did some did some homework on this, and we're coming from various perspectives. I did some reviewing of some law review articles, and I thought maybe we can start with a classic definition. Since we're in Missouri, a Missouri case from 1982, State versus Swain, and I'll just read the quote. There is a concept known as jury nullification, a jury deciding cases in disregard of a law they consider unfair. That is, however, simply a power a jury has because once the verdict is entered, it cannot be impeached and the defendant retried. Here's here's another definition from Black's Law Dictionary. A jury's knowing and deliberate rejection of the evidence or refusal to apply the law, either because the jury wants to send a message about some social issue that is larger than the case itself, or because the result dictated by the law is contrary to the jury's sense of justice, morality, or fairness. So there's two, two definitions to start it off. The, uh, the founders quotes in because I found it interesting. I, I ran across this several years ago. Who would, who in their right mind would say that the jury could ignore the law or the facts? Well, here's a quote by John Adams, founder of the United States from 1771. It is not only the juror's right, but his duty to find the verdict according to his own best understanding, judgment, and conscience, though in direct opposition to the direction of the court. Here's Alexander Hamilton, 1804. Jurors should acquit, even against the judge's instruction, if exercising their judgment with discretion and honesty they have a clear conviction that the charge of the court is wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think those represent to me the idea that the jury, the jury system is the most sacred institutional thing that we have to protect against tyranny, right? And I mean, that's what the founders were focused on. Certainly, oftentimes the jury should not be, well, the jury should never be encouraged to not follow the law while deliberations are sacrosanct and and if they go back there and decide not to follow it, that's their prerogative. But I would hope we can all agree that lawyers shouldn't get to encourage the jury to not follow the law and the facts. So listening to what you guys just said, my my thought at at the beginning here is that some this occurs at some level in every single case. Yes. Period. In other words, if you have a case and it's a technical case and you win because you should if the law is followed and the you know the facts are recognized and not ignored and yet we lose those cases sometimes the defense loses those cases sometimes and that's because you know your your story your case needs to present a situation that that other human beings regard as fair just and if they don't even though they're not consciously ignoring the facts, they're they're being screened. You know, they're being they 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 see them in a different light. Okay, because 
they if, if you tell a jury what your case is about in the first two minutes and they think it's bullshit, they don't like it for whatever reason, a particular juror, everything else they hear during that trial is going to be colored by their, their impression that this is not right, this isn't fair. You know, I don't think that's what we're talking about here. I, I think this is situations where attorneys yeah. are actively telling the jury not to follow the law or making an argument that's clearly contrary to what the law is. Example, easy example is med mal case, concept of negligence, and you hear in, in closing argument for 15 minutes, they, they don't have to be perfect. They are just, just, they didn't do it on purpose. They didn't do it on purpose. They and and my, my response is if they did it on purpose, we'd be, this would be a criminal case, yeah. not a civil and case. All, hey, by the way, we have a punitive damages claim. Yeah. The cases we see it the most in from what we do are med mal, in my opinion. But we see it in product cases and we see it in any time you're asking for money. I think you have the issue of do not want that plaintiff to get any money. And on the flip side, Sympathy can play into it, which is why it's such a wadeered topic by defense counsel of are you not going to want to turn this poor guy or poor woman or poor kid away and not give him any money even if you don't think the law and the evidence supports it? Or, you know, the other thing, too, that's a little more subtle is the question of what do they need? Well, need has nothing to do with it. You know, need is not the instruction. You know, I've had uh, attorneys argue, well, you know, their family's been taking care of them. You know, they've done okay so far. You know, they'll, they'll be helped by their family with stuff. In light of the fact that their family's going to help pick right. up the tent. Or even then, even if the family isn't going to help them, I mean, it's, it's you know, you need to put a, a, a value on what was taken from them, right? This can run in both directions. We're, we're talking about malpractice cases from the plaintiff's perspective, but some of these law review articles last night, it was a classic case where it went the other way in the old-fashioned contributory negligence cases where 1% fault, you don't get anything. And so a lot of jurors would ignore the fact that there was 1% fault or 10% fault. They just, that, they just We think that's what they did. Well, in some cases, I was thinking, regardless of which direction you're coming from, we're telling them, do you promise to be fair? Yeah, I'll be fair. Do you promise to follow the law? Yeah. Well, because they aren't going to admit in front of a judge that they won't. What are you going to do now if you think the law is unfair? Like you're convicting somebody. This happens in criminal cases all the time, I'm sure. I had jury. I was called as a juror. I sat in the back of the room, and I was fretting back there. I was thinking, if they have a possession, a marijuana possession case, I cannot, I cannot put someone in a cage based upon possessing a bit of marijuana. I just can't do it. Now, they didn't reach me, and I never, and it was, it turned out to be a, a case of violence. But I thought, this is starting, to, I was feeling some heat back then, thinking, I can't, I can't do that. Well, you would have been honest and said, nope. Mm -hmm. I've had judges tell me, and judges in the city, when we were talking about somebody, maybe it was evidence of marijuana in the civil case, we're trying to keep it out, and I've had judges flat out say, you shouldn't worry too much about that. I can't even seat a jury in a marijuana possession case in the city. Like you, we, They can't seat 12 people who would be willing to, as you said, Eric, put somebody in a cage for you know, having a, an ounce of marijuana, whatever, whatever. You have marijuana in their possession. Let me throw this in before we go further because here's a pretty uh, unusual case. Uh, Beavis Shock is a, was a guest on our podcast and he is a listener, so hello Beavis. Um, he gave me a, a, a brief he filed in a case about 10 years ago. It was a marijuana possession case. And he filed a trial brief. 
and he talked about the history of jurors and nullification, and he cited the Missouri Constitution, uh, Article 1, on what a jury does, which doesn't really limit the jury as far as what it can do. So here's what he said uh, to the judge. As hinted above, defendant also hereby formally states his intention to argue to the jury that the law prohibiting possession of marijuana is itself unjust, and the jury should nullify the law. And then he gives his uh, further reasons to support that. So he, he broadcast to the court, this is what he intends to do. And the judge said, no, you may not make that argument, and he obeyed the judge. There's a, there's a classic case involving Dr. Spock, you know, the baby doctor, from what, and he was a protester against the Vietnam War. And there's an article where the attorney who was going to represent him uh, came into the case and announced to the co-counsel for the other defendants, I am going to make that argument. I'm going to say, this is insane. You should not uh, convict this man in, under these circumstances. I forget what, exactly what the law was. But he said they had already filed a motion in limine with the court yeah. saying, we intend to do that. And the court said, no, you may not do that. And in fact, if you do, you will be held in contempt of court. And so he said, uh, he withdrew and he said that that was my main contribution to the case. You know what's interesting, and I, this is the first time I've thought of it, is that's a good question or issue in Bordier, and that is, in other words, how do you rehabilitate a juror by saying, will you follow the law if you can get them to admit that they wouldn't follow a law that they think is unfair, right? And I think, I think most people would agree, especially nowadays more so than maybe 10 or 15 years ago, that if they believe a law is unfair as applied to the facts of a particular case, would they have difficulty following it? And that's what we do. That's essentially, particularly on the issue of burden of proof. That's what I was thinking. Is That's what we do, is we go, look, it's more likely than not, and we try to give the sheets of paper example. I got shut down by by the judge earlier this week, and which bothered me about giving that example, but that's okay, that people, if they're being honest and they're talking with you, will often say, you're suing a doctor or a hospital for money you you only have to prove like fifty point oh 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 one percent. I don't think that's fair. Giving an example. Or an example. Giving an example, yeah. and that was fine. I still got to ask it. it I wasn't given a bit. It, it was you don't get to explain the burden of proof beyond what the definition is, and then the judge read the definition again, and I I said I've never been shut down from giving that example because it's accurate, but it's okay. I mean, and but then just with the instruction being read and questioning about it. People didn't talk to me like they normally do when I can give the example. Yeah. yeah. But you can usually get people to admit, those who are willing to talk to you, some, if they want to get on your jury and screw you and do jury nullification, they're going to just do it. Yeah, I don't think I can do You're going to be asking for maybe millions of dollars against a hospital. Yeah, or, you know, I had the last case I had two weeks ago, I had on the panel two or three engineers, and all of them... We're like, man, you know what? I got to see some some black and white stuff. My gray area isn't what th these other folks' gray area is, but it was it was easy because they were like, nope, don't don't think I can do that. And it's so it's so impactful and important to first try to parse that out in voir dire. And I'm going to give an example. This shows even when you try, sometimes you can't. But to try to shut down these arguments because they work. And the example is Johnny and I tried a case a couple years ago, John, that you're familiar with. And I'm not going to say the client's name or get into the details, but it was a MedMal case. 
it was a difficult med mal case, but we proved our case and and we won in a case that I we did not think we could we could win in. Um, and the client did a great job. The doctor presented poorly. Uh, the jury was out for seven hours, and they came back with a with a verdict, one hundred percent in our favor, with a moderate award, which which was understandable given the circumstances of the case. And we talked to the nine eight of the nine who sided in our favor and they, they you know they had questions for us 49 days after trial we got a motion for new trial attaching affidavits from the three jurors who wouldn't sign on to the verdict and those three jurors who we saw upset and crying when they walked out of the jury room that we got a verdict and stomping past us accused 49 days later after being instructed repeatedly by the court, all of them not to do any outside research, those three jurors accused one of the jurors that supported our case of doing outside research and introducing it into the jury room. And defense counsel presented those three affidavits, which were curiously like verbatim identical and made no comment about who reached out to who. And we responded by getting in touch with the foreperson and four of the other jurors and all of them said that absolutely did not happen. And then they explained to us what those three jurors were saying back in the jury room. And those three jurors were saying things like, well, I just love my doctor and every doctor I've had, and I'm never going to find against a doctor. I assume you covered that in Bordier. Yeah, I did. And none of them answered any questions about it. Another one crossed his arms, apparently, and just kept saying the whole time, none of us are in a position to judge a physician. We shouldn't be doing it, and there should be no bullshit lawsuits like this against doctors. I also covered that in Voir Dyer, and that person didn't raise their hand. And uh, there was another one who was saying, this is going to ruin this doctor's career, and we just can't do this. And fortunately, we got the four-person and three other jurors to sign affidavits for us saying that what what the three against us said was not true, and here's what these folks were back there saying, and we were able to succeed and, and quash that motion for new trial, and then we succeeded on appeal. But it just highlights, like, the importance of Wadir, which we've covered, but any, any efforts by counsel to kind of feed into a jury's ability to decide things based on improper considerations works so you have to try to get out in front of it. Well, you can just see from your example and many others, why would anyone want to invade that process and claim that we need to like record the jury's deliberation? Like, what are the standards? It's like making sausage. It's just like, a, you know, the legislature, all kinds of things go into it, all kinds of emotions. How would you ever parse out what a fair deliberation? All kinds of people say things. You know, I've had juries come out and, and say, yeah, we gave the verdict because we figured the guy had insurance, you know, and, and I just have to live with it. Right. And that's the thing. If you, you know, the, the putting those two examples side by side are night and day, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, the jury, the reason that the jury is so valuable in our system, in our society, in our system of, of you know, government is, you know, they don't get political contributions. You know, people outside the room can't come in and talk to them. You know, they can't be bought. I mean, they come in with strong feelings. I mean, that's that's the reason why we shouldn't disturb jury deliberations. But while while doing what you can to try to prevent counsel from, from directly inviting it, 
in an inappropriate way. Eric, you were telling us before we got started about some of the history of this, which I found sort of fascinating, going back like a thousand years. Yeah, you know, um, I, I'm not going to have the precise sites here, but I, I read several law review articles last night, and uh, apparently back around 1100 or so, jurors were, they had a totally different role. They were assigned to go out and serve like witnesses and assistants to the judge making the decision. They, they did not do the work in the courtroom necessarily. They came back with information and, uh, and helped the judge. I think I mentioned to you the Bushnell decision. It's been mentioned by a number of articles as a key case. Is, is what case? What state is it from, or where is the case from? Let me let me just read. I got I, two short paragraphs. It's, it's pretty interesting, and the idea is that it was at this moment where the jury stopped being under the thumb of. So this is old England. This is not. Yes, this is 1670. Okay. So the shift to the jury becoming becoming a fact finding institution is the seed from which nullification as a political power grew. No longer formally bound by their own knowledge, jurors could more readily reach outcomes against the weight of the evidence, the law, or both. And jurors did, particularly as political prosecutions grew during the 17th century. Undoubtedly, the most significant instance of such a jury, juror obstinance occurred in Bushnell's case. In 1670, Edward Bushnell served as a juror in the trial of Quaker leaders William Penn and William Meade, who had been arrested for illegally preaching and disturbing the peace. The jurors refused to convict, presuming untruth, because this is back when the, jury, when the judge could say, that's an untrue verdict. Yeah. The judge rejected the juror's verdict and ordered the jury, quote, locked up without meat, drink, fire, and tobacco. Wow and instructed, quote, you shall not think thus to abuse the court. We will have a verdict by the help of God, or you shall starve for it. <laughs> I guess they didn't have judgments notwithstanding the verdict at that point in time. The jury still refused to convict. God love them, man. That's a great jury. The, the court ordered the jury to pay a fine for issuing a false verdict. So Edward Bushnell refused to pay, and he was imprisoned. Bushnell petitioned for a writ of habeas corpus, which eventually reached Chief Justice Sir John Vaughan of the Court of Common Police, who ordered Bushnell released. In his decision, Vaughan famously explained that the judge can never know what evidence the jury have, and consequently, he cannot know the matter of fact nor punish the juror for going against the evidence. That is, the jury may have fairly relied upon evidence of which the judge is unaware, and from a general verdict, it is essentially impossible for a judge to declare that the jury acted in violation of its duty to issue a truthful verdict. Consequently, Vaughn speaks not of the juror's right to disregard the law according to the conscience. To the contrary, he emphasized that jurors were required to follow the judge's direction concerning the law, but the effect of that ruling was clear. By removing the potential for punishment, jurors could exercise power over the law and facts as they saw fit. So just to give credit for this, uh, this is an article called Jury Nullification as a Spectrum, uh, written by Richard Loren Jolly uh, in 2022, Pepperdine Law Review. So that has been seen as a critical moment where the jury, they should not be stopped from doing what they do. Oh, and the court can order a new trial or the court can enter a judgment 
notwithstanding the verdict for being against the weight of the evidence, et cetera, et cetera. The jury's a loose cannon, but we don't get to argue. <laughs> like, for example, ignore the facts. I have literally had that argued by opposing counsel in closing argument before. Ignore testimony that happened from the stand. John? Yeah, I just had it happen two weeks ago where it was, I think you'd have to ignore the facts for us not to get a verdict in the case. And it was a 9-3 verdict. But, I mean, that's that's what was going on. I had a case in rural Louisiana that Johnny and I tried where the corporate representative admitted on the stand that the product was defective and unreasonably dangerous and had killed hundreds of people. And there was no, like, there was no testimony to dispute the question of, like, defect and causation. Uh, the damages were a little tenuous. But the de opposing counsel got up and was very nice and colloquial and said, you know, you can listen to you know all the testimony Mr. Cronin is talking about, all the things that he got people to say on the stand, uh, but I think he just doesn't understand how it works down here. And I said, objection, cyber, and I said, judge, she just, maybe I don't, but like. You don't know how it works down here. We lost. I said, you can't just directly tell the jury to ignore the evidence. And the judge said, well, you get rebuttal, and I imagine you'll highlight that. It's closing argument. So in, in terms of looking at what, we're, what are we saying about this, and we're saying it, it happens with every person on every jury. They, they filter evidence. They can believe somebody, not believe someone. But you can't, as, a, as an attorney, you can't go that extra step and encourage jurors to ignore facts you can try to explain them, and maybe there's some alternative explanation. But the, the, the other thing, too, is you can't, you can't blatantly tell the jury not to follow the law. You know, one example we were talking about was, you know, in, in a negligence case where maybe a med mal or something else where you say, you know, this, this defendant's a really good person, and they didn't mean to do it. And, and what that is, it's just saying it, it's substituting it's given the jury a different standard on which to judge the case, which is, Correct. you know, it's not negligence anymore. It's right, different factors. And, you know, that can't happen. It, and, it, and, you know, here's the thing about this issue. This issue cuts both ways. If you have a wonderful plaintiff and a tough set of facts, in my experience, your chances of winning that case are, are very, very good. You can have the best technical case in the world. And if you have a client who, you know, people will not like or there's some bad stuff in the, in the client's background, you ain't going to give them any money. And, and it, it guts both ways with the defendant. You know, we, when we talk about, Tim, right, we talk about what's the value of this case. One of my first questions is, you know, who, who's the defendant? And tell me about the conduct. You know, tell me about the defendant's conduct. Second, is the jury going to like our client? Right. Is, is the jury going to like the client? And we're lucky on our end. You know, we get to pick our cases. We should win our cases. We choose them. We pick our cases when they come in the, in the office. We're, we're back to my, my favorite cognitive bias, the availability heuristic. You know, once... You like somebody, certain evidence kind of disappears. Right. Same with the attorneys and the credibility issue, right? As soon as as soon as you hear something from an attorney that that's not right, or if you tell the jury something that's blatantly you know shown to be incorrect or false, I think you're you're done. It's it's uh, on the plaintiff's side especially. I think, and I don't want to say have this taken the wrong way, but it's impressions are more important than the facts. Impressions. You know, if a witness testifies and then two, three days later the jury's deliberating, what are they going to remember? The exact words the person said? No, but they're going to have an impression of that person, your client, especially if your client takes the stand and, you know, testifies about whether their testimony is necessary for the liability part of the case or not, or the damages, whatever. 
they're going to come away with an impression of your client, and it better be a very, very good impression or you're in trouble. Yeah. That concludes part one of jury nullification. We'll be back with part two on our next episode. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Feith. I'm Tim Cronin. I'm John Simon. We'll see you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. At The Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.